Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi there, and welcome to the latest episode of Decent People, a production of Decentral Media. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I'm joined by Anthony Cezano, an Ethereum guru who publishes The Daily Gway a Monday to Friday 30-minute recap of all the major ETH news in Ethereum. He's also co-founder of ETHUB, an open source research and resource firm, and he appears to be able to move the price of Ether up or down, depending on his bullishness on any given morning. If you closely follow Ethereum and don't listen to the Daily Gway, you're doing it wrong. But he's also a great way to learn for newcomers, and to me, he feels a bit like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of Ethereum, but he's not nearly as old. Hey, Anthony, how you doing? Hey, Matt, thanks for the intro. That's a, you have a very unique intro. I like that. Obi-Wan Kenobi of Ethereum, but nowhere near as old. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, great to be here. I'm excited to, to have a chat today. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Um, so first of all, um, it's five o'clock on a Friday evening in Los Angeles, and it is noon in Melbourne, Australia, where you are. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. All right. So I think, first of all, I just need to address this. Um, does Australia exist? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, you go back and forth about it, right? Like uh, sometimes you're like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, but it's it's so funny that you ask a question like that because I've actually been genuinely asked even uh, stupider questions than that before, where people kind of like say, "Do you guys ride kangaroos in Australia?" And I'm and they're actually serious. It's not a, a meme or anything. And I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Like, <laughs> like it's like asking an, an American, "Do you guys ride bears or a Canadian?" Like, you know, the native animals there. But um, yes, no, we we do exist. We're just very far away from basically everything in in the world. <laughs> yeah, and and so. If, if anyone doesn't know, that's, that's a crazy meme that's out there. It's a copy pasta um, mm-hmm. that someone started on Facebook many years ago, or not many, but a few years ago. And it really kind of gained some traction um, where the, the idea was that Australia as a place doesn't exist. And that anytime you see anything about Australia, it's a bunch of actors and that <laughs> airline pilots are all in on it. And um, so... My, my sons are, are super into, um, you know, YouTube and the meme world, and, and they brought it to my attention. So um, I, I just wanted to start with that. And I, I want just to break the ice, like, did what did the local news like around you make of that? And what's the funniest thing that you remember where people had to be like, no, we, we actually are here and we live here. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't really remember too much of the local news covering it. I didn't remember the meme kind of like circulating a bit with my with my friends and stuff like that. And we just laughed it off as something kind of like silly, right? Because we're just like, obviously, you know, obviously it exists and things. <laughs> but some, you know, so, some people actually got quite serious about it. I ended up I ended up seeing, and I'm just like, okay, well, the internet is full of these kinds of people who come up with these wild theories, and then. It, and it's kind of like impossible to tell if they're being, you know, actually serious or if they're joking because it's, it, you know, you don't see their facial expressions and a lot of it is done anonymously on, on message boards and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember there being like too much kind of like fanfare around it just because it's, I mean, we obviously know <laughs> that, that it was just like some silly meme and and, and that we're here. But uh, I, I think um, what was actually something that caught us off guard was more so around kind of like the COVID coverage from other countries for Australia, where I don't know, like without getting too political, it seems like the media of other countries use Australia as like an example of what happens, you know, if you, if you go too far towards kind of like doing lockdowns and things like that. And it was wild because everyone thought that we were still in lockdown and we were start kind of imprisoned and like cops were coming to our doors and say, you need to stay home. And everyone here's like, what are you talking about? Like, we're fine. We're going to the park. We're going, you know, uh, we, we can travel and everything like that. I think that's what actually caught people off guard more so, like in terms of something that came from overseas um, in, instead of kind of like the memes. So that was an interesting kind of like last few months, that's for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, and I, as I am following it, it seems like New Zealand um, is going even a little bit further. I mean, the, but it, yeah, it's it's that question of like, it's so far away and nobody's there on the ground right now to actually tell the true story of what's happening, which um, I'm sure we'll filter into the rest of our conversation about Ethereum because, you know, there's a lot of that, that, that gets, um, that gets filtered into uh, sort of what people think is, or, you know, what they want to think about it rather than what's the reality. Mm -hmm. um, so you're in Melbourne now. Um, Tell me about uh, your childhood. Where did you grow up, and uh, where where were you? Uh, where where did your parents live? Yeah, so I mean, I've been in Melbourne my entire life. I was born here, raised here, lived here. I never lived anywhere else. Um, so, for reference, for people, I'm I'm 29, uh, turning 30 this year. So. Uh, yeah, I've just lived my entire life. Basically, actually, before I moved into my new place over the last couple of months, I'd lived in the same house for most of my life as well, uh, the, the family home and everything like that. So uh, yeah, just uh, love the city, love uh, love Australia. I don't really have a reason to leave, even though um, as I got into Ethereum, I discovered that I was at kind of a disadvantage, both from a time zone perspective and from like a distance perspective. But I think within crypto, um, and it's like widely, widely understood that most of it happens kind of like online and you don't really need to be based in any one geography to, to actually benefit from it. Um, but like to your second question about my parents, it, I have an Italian background. So my dad was born in Italy and then he, he's, you know, came with his parents and, and migrated to Australia as a lot of Italians did back then. My mom it wasn't born in Italy, but her parents are Italian as well and, and migrated around the same time too. So all Italian uh, background, not, nothing really else in there. I haven't, I haven't gone back too far, but um that's is there a big um, Italian um, community in Melbourne? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe not so much these days, but they 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 used to be like, um, I guess through the the seventies, eighties, nineties, it was just like Italians basically everywhere, and not just Italians, but like uh, Greeks and, and things like that as well. Like just that part of Europe, a lot of them kind of like migrated to to Australia, uh, and, they, and there's still kind of like strips in, in like um, around the city where it's kind of like dominant, dominated by kind of like Italian culture and things like that. So, but as time went on, I, I mean, Melbourne's very multicultural. So as time went on, we had like uh, different kinds of people migrating to Australia. Um, a lot of um, a lot of Asian people migrated to Australia starting in the 2000s and 2010s. So they've kind of got their own place. Like we have a Chinatown and things like that, of course, in, in the city. So yeah, I mean, it used to be much more kind of like oriented around the Europeans, but now it's, I mean, even a lot of Indians as well migrate to Australia. So it really is kind of like all, all kind of different parts of the world world here but um i obviously just really experienced italian culture growing up and everything like that and uh but yeah i think melbourne is a constantly evolving city like it doesn't stay in one place for too long because we have i mean even though we're far away from everywhere there's a lot of people who come and go that's for sure there's a lot of travel going on within within melbourne and what did uh what did your mom and dad do when you were growing up yeah, so my my dad pretty much worked uh, in in retail for most of his life, selling kind of like home appliances and furniture. He like managed stores and ended up owning one eventually. Uh, and uh, my mom, she's been doing a few different things. She was like an administrator for for a while, a bunch of different companies there. And then um, you know she's uh, working at an accounting firm, I think uh, right now uh, as as uh, as administrator there. So yeah, I mean uh, it, it's funny because like I think in there because in their kind of like generation, it was kind of like less about going and getting a career and more about kind of like just getting a job because that's what you did. Right. Like it wasn't, there's a much more focus on having a career these days than there was back then. And it's kind of like funny how the, how the times change there, but I think for them, you know, they, the, my, my grandparents, they worked like really crappy jobs when they came here, right, to, to survive because that's all they could get. There was a lot of racism around uh, Italians when they first came here. Um, there was a derogatory term uh, uh, called WOG that ended up uh, being used a lot. People may have heard of it. Um, it's not as derogatory as some of the other kind of like uh, racist terms out there from my, my experience, but it was used a lot to make fun of Italians and say, you know, go back to your country. But the same stuff we see like in a lot of places in the world. So because of that, they were discriminated against against pretty heavily when going for jobs not so much my parents but but my grandparents uh, and then my parents getting like these these jobs that were actually steady and like they had lots of friends and like friends from different cultures that was like a massive step up from where my grandparents were right yeah. so um yeah, that's what that's kind of like what they did for, for most of their life they um they didn't kind of like pursue the the university path because it was again very very different back then um so so yeah that's what they that's what they did and I, my dad kind of like recently is just kind of uh I don't he's not retired or anything like that but he's kind of like taking a bit of a break because he's done he's done the, the retail thing for so long but you know the funny thing is like from my parents I think it's where I got my my grit my my kind of like hard work and hard working grit and sticking to something because I saw like how hard they worked and how you know how they stuck to things even though it obviously wasn't like uh something that they loved doing but they did it for uh for, for various reasons so I think that's that's where a lot of that comes from for myself yeah, very, very similar to the United States, but just a couple of generations maybe removed, you know, um, where you've got the immigrant population coming in and then the first generation really kind of getting a foothold and then their kids kind of figuring out like the education system and, and moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, um, what did you like school? What were you like as a kid? Did you, were you playing sports? Were you uh, into, you know, were you a nerd? Were you just like kind of hating school and ditching class or what was that like? 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I absolutely hated school. Uh, it was probably the worst environment ever for someone like me. Uh, I don't learn by being kind of like taught in a structured way in, in a school environment. The way I learn is very chaotic. Like I have to have like so many inputs coming in and then I organize them in my head. Whereas obviously with school, it's extremely structured. You have like one class for one topic, one class for another topic, and you have like time allotments. That didn't work for me at all. So I, I pretty much tuned out most of most of school. Like I, I was sleeping in class. I didn't really skip class because the schools that I went to, I went uh, for secondary school or high school, I went to an all boys college and they were pretty strict. Uh, so if you skipped class, you would get into lots and lots of trouble for doing that. Uh, and obviously I didn't want to get suspended or anything because my parents were paying a lot of money for me to be there. But uh, still, I, I just- class you just sleep through it yeah yeah and that was actually probably worse because the teachers could see like that i was just sleeping and they would just like yell at me and then eventually report me to like the the house leader as they called it um and then i'd get detention and stuff but i I, a major reason why i would sleep actually is because i'd stay up late playing video games so during my teenage years i played a lot of world of warcraft because that was like the big thing back then um and i'd stay up till like 2 3 a.m have to be up at 7 a.m for (laughs) for school so you know i'd I'd be very very tired um but yeah so, so school definitely was um was not uh was not for me uh i i think uh i gravitated towards doing things my own way i had a, have a really big problem with authority not so much like like I'll, it, it depends on what authority it is i didn't really respect most of my teachers uh, i didn't like that they told me what to do i didn't like that they tried to micromanage my life um and i guess like same with my parents to an extent as well but i think they realized that early on that they couldn't really tell me what to do in in a sense of kind of like i wouldn't listen to them if they told me to do something i didn't want to do right if it was kind of like and and this made me a really shitty child to raise by the way <laughs> i would just do whatever i wanted so i you know when i have kids i, I really hope they don't turn out like like me because i don't want to have to deal with that i commend my parents on that um but and you mentioned kind of like sport i think my, my dad's very big into sports. Uh, he absolutely loves it. We have Australian rules football here, or AFL as it's known. He absolutely loves it. obsessed with it. It has been his whole life. Used to play when he was younger, things like that. And that's actually, it's obviously a, a huge kind of like thing in Australia, a huge cultural thing, but I am not really into sport. My dad tried to get me into it when I was younger, but I think again, being part of a sporting team is extremely structured and it's kind of like a team. It, it's, it's a definitely a team thing. Whereas because I, I kind of like, I mean, one have a problem with authority, problem with listening to people, don't really do the structured thing. And because I don't really do the structured thing, I don't really work well within teams, so to speak, like as kind of like, a, that's why I'm like a lone ranger most of the time. Uh, it, it's kind of very hard for me to work well with teams because people rely on me to do things in a, in, in, you know, a certain time and, and, and kind of like I get anxious about that and stressed about that. I'm like, you know, I want to I do this on my own time sort of thing. So it's just yeah it, it kind of like all i guess came from when i was when i was a kid and just reflecting back on that sometimes being like wow i've actually been like this my whole life i thought it was just recently where i was just like you know i got, I got to this point where i was just like okay I, I don't know why i'm like this but i am but reflecting on what i was like as a kid and talking to my parents about it too like parts of my childhood that i don't remember obviously they said yeah i was literally always like this i just never listened to anyone i did whatever i wanted uh and i was like okay well where did i get that from because my parents aren't like that and i don't think my grandparents are like that and they're like well maybe you got it from one of my grandparents my um uh my nonno as we call them in, in italian uh, who, who passed away a few years ago he uh, used to be the same as me he hated people telling him what to do and things i'm like okay well at least i get it from somewhere <laughs> so so yeah my, my it was, it was definitely interesting interesting childhood full of um full of me getting into trouble that's for sure <laughs> yeah i was um so i've got a son who's 13 and i was thinking just the other day 
Um, the only thing that sucks more than being a teenager is raising one. Um, <laughs> it's, it is, it is uh, you know, it's hard to sort of put yourself back in their shoes because it's so long ago. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it's, it's hard on, on any front to be a teenager. If you're a lone wolf, though, that can be kind of, that can be hard. Was, was that hard for you? Was that lonely? Like, how, how do you think that that uh, shaped you going forward? Yeah, it, it kind of definitely was lonely. I was, uh, I was pretty, I was, I was bullied a lot in in high school because of it. Like, I didn't really have a, I mean, I, I didn't really know how to make friends. Uh, like, I, I, I tried, and it just didn't really work out. I think I didn't really get people. I didn't really get like the the norms of of how to be with people. Uh, and because like I, I. I guess I didn't work well within within groups and things like that and wanted to just just do stuff on my own and, and stick to myself. <clears throat> People made fun of me for that, right? They're like, oh, loner, you know, you're just, you know, sitting in a corner. I used to go to the library a lot in, in high school during like uh, recess and lunchtime and things like that just to hide out basically because I, I love just doing stuff on my own. But I think once I started playing World of Warcraft, it kind of like changed a bit from there because World of Warcraft being an online game is very cooperative. You have to play with other people to get anything done. And that's when I actually started making a lot of friends because we all played it together. We, you know, stayed up late and things. We got into groups. We, 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 we did all this sort of stuff. And I think that's what really kind of like changes it to, okay, well, I don't have to be like a total lone ranger where I can't work with anyone or I can't speak to anyone or I can't be friends with anyone. Um, so I, I'm actually like, I, I mean, it's funny. I don't play the game too much anymore. I mean, it's been a, such a long time now and it's, it's kind of like, I mean, I don't have really have anyone to play with it, play with anymore because all my friends moved on. But I think that that actually shaped a big part of my teenage years is being able to actually learn what it was like to play in a play with people, play in a group with people, not be kind of like a lone ranger. And that's, you know, the, the bullying still kind of like existed because then people just bully me for being a nerd. Cause back then, if you played video games, you were a nerd these days, it's like the cool thing to do. But back then it was still like, Oh, you're a nerd. You play video games. Uh. Um, but like, I, I think um, that's kind of like what really helped me through that and, and got me to a point where I was kind of like, okay, you know, I I, I I can kind of like play nice with people. I can I can make friends, but uh, I can still keep that Lone Ranger spirit, which I which I still do to to this day. Definitely, I I still think that if I'm around, I, I wouldn't call myself an introvert, but if I'm around a group a big group of people too long, and too long being maybe a couple of hours, I kind of like I get over it really quickly. I, it becomes overwhelming for me. Uh, but it depends on, on the group. Cause like, if I go to like an Ethereum conference, for example, I can be around people all day and I'm absolutely, you know, happy to do that. But only if we're talking about Ethereum and crypto, if, as soon as the, 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 the party moves to like a bar or something like that, and people start talking about just bullshit, I'm like, ah, I'm out. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to do this anymore. Um, so yeah. it's just kind of like weird how that works. It's kind of like, it goes back to me not wanting to do things I don't want to do sort of thing. It's like, well, I don't want to do this at all. Like I hate doing this. I just want to talk about crypto. Well, you guys aren't talking about crypto, so I'm out. It, some, a lot of people will actually just put up with it. Just be like, oh, I don't want to be here, but I've got to be here for appearances or because like I have to be here for whatever reason. And I think that uh, I just I just don't do that. Like it's not something I, I, I'm interested in doing. Yeah, that, that's funny. Um, I resonate with that because like, my job obviously is to talk to people and to interview people. Um, and when it's professional and I can get somebody like you on the phone, you know, or then I have no trouble having a conversation, but if it's me in, in my real life and I'm at a party, I, I have a really hard time just making small talk. I really don't, um, 
it's not that I don't care. It's just that I don't really know like what's a good conversation starter or, and, and it's kind of like, I, I don't understand it about myself because I can click into this mode when I have to. But uh, if I don't have to, I'm sort of like, what am I even doing here? <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. I, I struggle with the, with the small talk as well. Um, I think f for me, I think it stems from, uh, I need to know uh, what to talk about. I need to have like a topic already uh, ready to talk about with this person. That's why I, I find it very hard to like, uh, talk to new people unless there's kind of like pre-context there. So within crypto, it's very easy for me to talk to people because there's already context where it's like, okay, let's talk about crypto. Let's talk about Ethereum. But in like my real life outside of crypto, when I meet someone new, I'm like, mm, what do I talk about? Like, I don't like making that small talk to get to a point where I need to, to know what to talk about. I like the icebreaker already being there. It's like a pre-context. And um, I, I think it's very funny as well. My best friend is the complete opposite of that. He is like a master of small talk, master of making friends. Um, and he tried to, to teach me how to do that. And I was like, man, I'm not feeling it. Like you can be the socialite. I'm, I'm just going to be the guy, the, the you, your weird friend who like stays in the corner until something interesting pops up to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I realized about myself um, many years ago was just, and I'm, I'm okay with it is that uh, as a writer and somebody who, who uh, you know, I just kind of like to sit back and watch. I like to sort of observe, you know, and that's, that's where I feel comfortable. I don't need to be the person, you know, in the middle with the spotlight on him. I just, I'm sort of like, I want to check out this whole scene and kind of like just digest it in my own time. Um, but I've listened to some other um, interviews you've given, and, and you, you've talked a little bit about depression and, and things in your high school years and, and, and working through that. And how did, did so it sounded like you, the first community you found was World of Warcraft online. And, and then, but it sounded like you were also struggling with sort of a purpose in your life when you were in your high school years. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think as much as World of Warcraft was really good to me, I think I still used it as a pretty massive escape from real life and from the realities of, of real life. Um, definitely from the bullying. The bullying is what led to the depression. Um, that's just a natural kind of consequence where I kind of felt uh, I was kind of like worthless and like not, no one would ever like me. And why am I like this? You know, even though I've come to terms with it at this part in my life where I'm actually happy with the way I am back then seeing everyone else be different to me and, and me being this kind of like lone ranger who found it really hard to, to make friends and, and, and kind of like found it really hard to focus on anything. Uh, it kind of frustrated me. I was like, why aren't I like other people? Why, why can't I do this? Why can't I just be normal? Uh, and, you know, it, obviously in, in high school, kids are relentless. Like people don't really get a context around it. They don't understand how hurtful they can be. I actually had a few of my, my bullies after high school apologize to me saying, man, I didn't know what I was doing. Like I was young, I was stupid. And I'm like, I get it. Like I got it. Uh, but by that point, like, especially in your early twenties, you, you, you understand, you're like, okay, teenagers. The pain is there teenage, though. It doesn't leave. It's that's what's tough about it. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't, uh, but it does make it a bit, a bit easier to, to kind of like deal with. Um, and I, I think I eventually got, came, came to terms with it and, and, and uh, was, I was at peace with it by the time around, I think year 11 or year 12, which was 17, 18 years old, I started like having a big group of friends around me. Uh, and then from there that led into like, we get our license here in Australia um, at 18. So we get like a learner's permit at 16. You have to be with an adult, but then at 18, you get your, your provisional license and you can drive on your own. Um, and that's, like after high school, I had like a group of friends that I used to hang around with a lot. And that lasted till like 21, 22. And then by that point, 
the exist- existential dread really set in. It wasn't depression anymore. It was like, what am I doing with my life? Because I, I, as I said, like I'm not a structured learner. So I tried going to university, didn't work out at all. I, I actually skipped a lot of university. I, I, I hated it. Absolutely. It was worse than high school for me, I think, because making friends in university is even harder than making friends in, in high school. I, I think at least it was for me because there's a lot of different people there. It was, um, it was co-ed. So it was a different environment for me. Cause as I said, I went to an all boys school. Uh, so from then on, I had a group of friends that, that lasted since high school that I just hung around with a, until then, but then they were just doing the same thing every, every day and every night. Uh, we would just go out, we would kind of like <laughs> eat a lot of junk food, you know, do nothing essentially. And that's where it kind of like that purpose thing started really kicking into gear. I don't, I had always felt it in the back of my mind during high school. I'd always been like, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Like, uh, I can't just be playing world of Warcraft forever. I, you know, am I going to, uh, do, do I take this professionally? Do I become like a game designer or something? Cause I was always interested in, in just tech broadly. So I was happy to do anything within, within tech, but, uh, I never really kind of like had that, that purpose. And that, that made the depression even worse. And I think, you know, in my early twenties, as I, kind of grow, grew out of hanging around with people just for the sake of hanging around with people. I, I, I kind of like needed to find my next thing. So I think from there, what I tried to do to kind of rectify this, I started a couple of businesses, um, which funny enough, like was very against what I had been doing previously because I had to work with, with people. But then starting those businesses made me realize that I hate working with, with certain types of people because they don't pull their weight. Uh, the first one that I started was like a clothing brand. There was me and three other people. One of them was my best friend who was fine, but there was two other people who they didn't really pull their weight at all. Uh, to be honest, like they did things here and there, but I, I was doing most of the work and I was like, okay, well, this isn't going to work out. And it really didn't. I mean, it, it was just kind of like something that we were doing on the side. Cause I was also doing freelance web development. Um, that was on my own. And I actually l- liked doing that because it was on my own and I'd have to rely on anyone else. Uh, and then after that, I started kind of like a, a hair care company, like m- mostly focused on beard, uh, beard oils uh, because I actually don't have any hair. I'm, I'm bold. <laughs> but um, we, 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 uh, we, we focused on um, like beard oils and partnered with a barber for that. And he actually pulled his weight. He was awesome, right? Like there was, and, and same with my, my friends and everything like that. So that was, that was going really well. But then it got to a point where I was like, okay, well, is this going to be a serious thing? Or like, what, what is, you know, what is this? And I still felt that kind of like, um, that, that, that dread and that kind of like lack of purpose. Cause I was doing something, I was feeling good about it, but there was still something missing. Uh, and then from there I got a, a I actually got like a full-time job at a telecommunications company during cybersecurity. It was shift work, but I was kind of like used to the odd hours being a gamer. So I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll do shift work. <laughs> and then I quickly realized that um, doing this kind of like shift work or guess like shift um, sleeping pattern as a teenager is much easier than doing it as an adult. <laughs> as an adult, you uh, you can't recover uh, very, very well from, from that kind of like um, that sleeping arrangement. So I did that for a while, but this is around the same time I found Ethereum as well. So uh, I joined that company in late 2016. I discovered Ethereum in early 2017. Uh, and that's kind of like how that kind of all started. But we can we can stop down in case you wanted to jump in. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm- I'm curious if, so as you were going through all these things, like, was there something that you were always avoiding? Do you think looking back on your life, like you were sort of like, I want to do this, but I'm not going to let myself do it. Or do you feel like you were more like, like honestly just searching for the thing that you wanted to do? I think I was definitely searching for what I really wanted to do and what would actually hold my attention. Uh, as I said, like I am pretty chaotic in how I learn about things, but I'm also chaotic in 
<clears throat> in what I am interested in. Um, I, I, you know, I've never been diagnosed with any kind of like ADHD or anything like that. I've never gone to a doctor or anything, but I do have a lot of issues with my, with um, keeping my attention on something like nothing has ever kept my attention. Like, like Ethereum has, and that's why I'm still kind of like sticking around with it so many years on. <clears throat> but I think what I really had an issue with earlier on was responsibility. I think I'd never wanted responsibility. I didn't like having uh, any sorts of responsibility. I didn't like having anyone rely on me for anything. I didn't like, uh, and that's that, that's kind of like why I didn't really work well within teams. Well, yeah, it kind of goes to the point of like what you <clears throat> didn't like was people shirking their responsibility, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, if you hate something, don't you do it too is the expression, right? So like, I'm not saying you shirked your responsibility, but you had, it sounds like you had like that hang up about it. So if there mm-hmm. aren't other people to, to be, you know, that, that need to be responsible to you, then, then all the better, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I think it probably stemmed from the fact that I saw that what it was like when I, uh, when people were responsible for things, um, you know, with, with regards to me, and then they didn't follow up their end of the bargain. I think for me, it was like, okay, I didn't want it, that to be me because I knew how, how shitty it made the other person feel. So I think I kind of like shied away from, from that, but um, that, I think a lot of that changed. And I think a lot of my mindset towards things changed when I started getting involved with the Ethereum community um, because I felt not only responsibility, but I felt a sense of duty uh, where I was just kind of like, I am a community leader here. I can't afford to, like, I felt so strongly about Ethereum and Ethereum's future and needing to, to help Ethereum succeed that I was like, I can't afford to shirk this responsibility anymore. I need to take responsibility here. All right. But before we get there, we mm-hmm. got to get to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. How did you, uh, everyone gets to Bitcoin first, of course. So, so tell me who introduced you to Bitcoin or how did you first come across uh, that? Yeah. So it's actually funny. Um, I actually got into Bitcoin way back in 2013. Uh, and that was about around the time that I was still at university. Um, and my friend introduced me to it just randomly. He's just like, Hey man, like there's this Bitcoin thing. I'm like, what, what's Bitcoin? And I, you know, obviously <laughs> j- jumped down the rabbit hole and, I think back then I was still in the mindset of uh, very kind of like anti-authority. You know, we had, it only been a few years since the financial crisis. And actually, I think back then I was, I was probably bigger into conspiracy theories um, than I, than I am now. Uh, so I was kind of like that, that guy that was like, Oh yeah, you know, this conspiracy theory here, or this theory here, like this doesn't add up. Uh, and then I think that's what attracted me to Bitcoin. Cause I was like, Oh yeah. Like so you were like, un- Australia doesn't exist before Australia. Doesn't <laughs> exist. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, and I think that's what kind of like um, because the Bitcoin crowd in 2013 was very much like that. They're like very anti-authority, right? Like extremely anti-authority, and like you know we can create our own money. It's not controlled by the banks, not controlled by the government. We're not going to have another 2008 you know financial crisis because of it. And I really bought into that like very heavily in 2013. Uh, I was all about it. But what were um, you about 21, 22 at that age? Or uh, yes, yeah, I was. I was about 21, 22. Yeah, that's correct. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, and as I said, I was still having like hanging around with a big group of mates and things like that. Um, and like still not really doing kind of like much in the way of full-time work or anything. So I, I just, I didn't have much money back then either as a consequence. So I didn't really put much money into Bitcoin, but I, I ended up getting, yeah, very, just very, very heavily involved. And I was actually like a pretty big advocate for it as well to kind of like friends and family. I was like, yeah, this Bitcoin thing. Like, uh, you know, it's, 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 um, not money controlled by the state. And they had no idea what I was talking about. People no no regular people don't think about this sort of stuff. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's hard even today. I think still. Yes. Yeah. To wrap their head around, yeah. let alone in 2013. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, people call, obviously call me crazy for it. They're like, you know, it's a scam, whatever. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, even back then I obviously knew it wasn't a scam or anything like that. But um, I think 
what happened with Bitcoin was that the only thing holding most people's attention to Bitcoin, and this is true for most crypto, but for I think even for within crypto, if you're in the industry, the only thing holding most people's attention seems to be the price. And if the price is not going up, most people will very quickly lose interest. And that's actually what happened with me. Um, I actually lost interest when the price started going down after the massive bubble because MT Gox collapsed and everything like that. And then in 2014, I just sold what little I had and didn't look look back at it uh, until I discovered Ethereum. But uh, I, I think having that first experience with, with Bitcoin back then actually shaped a lot of how I treated Ethereum because I regretted leaving the ecosystem back then because I missed out on early Ethereum uh, like massively. I obviously didn't participate in the ICO or anything like that. Uh, and I think that really did shape my my views in crypto. So I'm, I'm very glad for that time. But these days, I think that Bitcoin, I mean, I wouldn't call it like a, a failure. Um, I, I think there's a lot of people who still think it's a ma massive success because that's what they want it to be. But from my perspective, uh, it, it just it's something that I don't find interest in anymore. It's just like, I'm not really about kind of like being super anti-government and thinking that lizard people are controlling the money supply and want us all to kind of like um, be poor forever. Like that's what a lot of, like, there's a lot of kind of like that rhetoric in the, in the kind of like Bitcoin community that I just don't resonate with uh, anymore. Uh, but I did when I was, I was younger, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of like funny how that changed from there. And, and how did, um, so you got out and you kind of cashed out your Bitcoin, but then what brought you back around to Ethereum? So another friend introduced me to it in early 2017. He said, hey, I know you were into Bitcoin in back in, back way back. Uh, check out Ethereum. And you know, the funny thing is, it's not like I wasn't kind of like still aware of Bitcoin during 2014, 15 and 16. I actually was very aware of it because we're uh, um, working with computers, working on some cybersecurity stuff. There was a lot of ransomware back then and they were demanding Bitcoin payment. And I... I remember hearing about it all the time and I was like, oh, Bitcoin, whatever that thing's, you know, I, I didn't think it was a scam, but I was like, oh, whatever, it's dead. I actually legitimately thought it was dead back then. I was one of those people. Um, and because the price was doing nothing. Uh, so I, I kind of like just keep dismissing it. And then I didn't, I actually didn't hear about Ethereum until early 2017. Uh, and then my friend, like, cause I trusted my friend, cause his friend was the one who actually got me the job at this company in, in late 2016. So like at that point in time, I was really close with him. We were like talking all the time and I really trusted him. So I'm like, all right, all right, I'll give it a chance. I'll look into this Ethereum thing. And then because like I have a tech background, not a finance background, like at all, I'm not really, uh, never really did anything with finance, but always did stuff with tech immediately it resonated with me. I'm like, okay, it's like Bitcoin in that it has a native currency, but you can build stuff on it. And from then I was hooked, like, because I, I it just, there's a million different things you can do with Ethereum and there's a million different things you can build and there's so much stuff going on. 2017 obviously had like a, a massive run up as well. So that kept my attention too. you know, with what little money I had, I was making more money. I was like, oh my God, like this is so much money uh, for, for me at the time. Um, but also the fact that there was people actually still building stuff back then. There was the first remnants of DeFi coming out for people who remember back then it was like zero X. And I mean, Orga and stuff like that. Some of these kind of like apps are pretty ancient now. Like Ether Delta was like the first decentralized exchange uh, on Ethereum. Yeah. Um, uh, and there was like the talk of Ethereum moving towards proof of stake by the end of the year. And I thought that was really interesting. And obviously it didn't happen, right? It took much longer than we thought. But I think the fact that there was like a million different things happening, a lot of different cultures as well within Ethereum, rather than just kind of like the anti-government kind of like gold bug libertarian culture of Bitcoin is what really held my attention. And just generally, there wasn't any, uh, because Ethereum was much smaller than Bitcoin, there wasn't really any toxic toxicity. It was kind of like uh, people being like very friendly with each other. Whereas with Bitcoin, it had the block size wars in 2017. And I think at that point, 
uh, a lot of people got shied, shied off from Bitcoin because like, this is just like super toxic. I don't want to deal with this drama. I just want to kind of like build stuff. And I think Ethereum was like a refuge for those people. It's interesting um, hearing you talk about your, your past and not like, like just having a hard time finding the right people to work with because um, then jibing that with Ethereum, which is really a community and it's like, people do work together very well. And I think that's one of the keys to its success. Um, what was it, what do you think was, was there something different about the Ethereum community that, that when you started exploring it, you know, did, were these like your people, were these like the world of Warcraft people, but they were like now, you know, dealing with a, a global system that had a native currency and all these possibilities on top of it that seemed almost kind of limitless. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Actually, you hit the nail on the head. I think I found my people again. Uh, I think I, that's what I've been struggling with for a very long time. Is like I didn't have a group of people that I resonated with anymore. I had obviously grown out of like the gaming kind of like scene. Uh, that scene changed a lot because. It, I mean, the gaming scene is really dominated by younger people, especially people kind of like that have, because they have the time to play games. They have the time to set the culture. It really is dominated by the teenagers and probably some people in their early twenties. But um, for me, cause I had grown out of it. I was like, I, I was looking again for, for my, for my, my people, for my home. And I, I don't think I actually found it in 2017. I think I found it in the bear market. I found it in 2018 when all the noise went away and the only people left in the Ethereum community were the people who actually gave a shit about Ethereum and not just the prize. And I think from there, I ended up making a lot of friends. We formed a little community together and we just kind of like helped each other through the bear market. We, we grew very strong bonds. And these are people like, people know them, Eric Connor, Ryan Sean Adams, David Hoffman, DC Investor. Uh, this, I mean, there's a lot, I'm not going to name them all, but these people, we all stuck around. We all built ourselves up. We all came up together and came to prominence together in the community and, and kind of like really stuck by Ethereum and did a lot of stuff for, for Ethereum as a, as a community. And I think, and we did it not so much as a as an organized group, but we did it as kind of like a, a bizarre model where we all did our own thing and it was kind of chaotic, but we all came together and we were kind of like going towards the same goal. And that's what really, I think, cap captured me and what really kind of like changed it from, I don't work well with people to, okay, maybe I don't work well with people who I just don't resonate with at all. Like I work really well with people who I have the same kind of like mindset as me and the same vision as me and have, have the same kind of like community values as me, but um, I don't with the other people. And that's why I think I've stuck with Ethereum for so long and haven't kind of like gone to other chains or actually been interested in other chains because I don't resonate with the Solana ecosystem, for example. That doesn't draw me in at all. I don't resonate with those types of people. Not to say that they're bad people or anything like that, but they're just not my people. Then it's not the people that I want to hang around with. Same with a lot of the other ecosystems. And uh, I think the Ethereum community is very much the same. I think that's why most of the Ethereum community, or at least the early community, is still around, still kind of like having, hasn't gone to other uh, ecosystems because they just kind of like are, are fine with Ethereum. Like that's what they that, that's what that, that's what's where their community is, where their people are. Yeah, I I I um I, I feel as a, as a reporter, I started covering crypto in 2015 for Bloomberg and and didn't really get into Ethereum until early 2016 when I went over and met Joe Lubin at Consensus. Um, and then obviously um, everything went crazy. Uh, well, there was the DAO, but you know, we don't have to get into that. But then <laughs> everything went crazy in 2017 with the ICO boom and into 2018, and then the huge crash. So 2017, early 18 at Bloomberg, all of a sudden I've been trying to tell people like, this is really interesting. We should be writing more about this. We need more people, you know, like let's get some editors to, you know, devoted to it. And 
I just it just fell on deaf ears. And then the price, like you said, once the price goes up, everyone started paying attention. And it was just all of a sudden, you know, it was just like they were throwing bodies at it and it was crazy. And all of a sudden I was there and I knew more about it than a lot of people. But, you know, there were other people within Bloomberg who knew about it as well. I don't want to say that I was the only one. But then when the bear market hit, all those people just left. They just like mm-hmm. dropped it and went back to what they were doing. And I was like, no, I was like, this is part of my beat. I, I, I got the bug. Like I, as a reporter, it's a little difficult because you sort of have to have a good balance. You know, you don't want to be um, a cheerleader, but I also just, you know, Joe Lubin made the light bulb go off over my head. And, and ever since that moment, I really felt like Ethereum did have something that was new and 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 really potentially um, revolutionary so when the crypto winter hit i kept at it you know and i i was still churning out stories and i was talking to people who are still building and it really like forced me to just like kind of it, it helped me um expand and, and and meet a whole lot of new great people who were working and building and so when you know everything started to kind of clear and, and like DeFi summer came around in 2020, you know, and I, I felt like I was in a much better position than almost anybody in terms of reporting and knowing like the history and, and everything about it. So that I, I just had this like kind of baseline that was, I felt really good about. And I, I think if you talk to people who have been through the boom and bust, you know, I think that's kind of the, the story that you hear is that it really, you know, it's good to have a shakeout, you know, it's good because the people who make it through that shakeout are the people that, um, you know, actually believe in it or, or just, I don't know, what, what do you, is it, is it a belief or is it just that, are they just holding on, you know, to, to like try to make it to the next boom or what do you think about that? I think, I think it can be a mix of both, but um, I think belief plays an absolutely massive part in it. I think anyone who holds an asset down 94% in one year and is still bullish on you know that asset and its, tied, its ecosystem uh, has to have a lot of belief and a lot of conviction because, I mean, it was, I don't know, if anyone who was around in 2018, it was very, very brutal uh, for, for Ethereans because we had such a high in 2017. It's like the best party ever. We kind of like, um, uh, uh, you know, made a lot of money, uh, I guess paper money at least if you, you were an early ETH buyer. But then in 2018, it was kind of like a massive hangover and a massive kind of like come down, right? Where essentially- yeah, so just for, for anybody listening who doesn't know, it, it hit a high of 1,200-ish, 1,300, and then just tanked to about $100 mm-hmm. for hundred between 100 and $200 for a good couple of years. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and the thing is, is that like- Looking back, you know, I think eighty dollars was the, was the bottom, um, but no one knew where the bottom was. It just felt like ETH would keep dropping to zero at that point for, for some of us. And uh, and then in December twenty eighteen, I believe it was like eighty dollars. It, it got hit, and then that was it. That was the the, the bottom. And then in twenty nineteen, the ETH didn't really do anything. And twenty twenty is when the bull market came back. But I think to hold through that, to hold through the brutality of that, to hold through not only the price going down, but also everyone calling Ethereum dead. Like literally, it was like a repeat of twenty fourteen for Bitcoin, where everyone was calling bitcoin dead it was just the same thing for ethereum uh you needed a lot of belief uh because without it you would have just like given up and a lot of people did give up of course right? a lot of people who decided to stick around in 2018 actually ended up giving giving up halfway through uh and i, I honestly 
I think without my core community that I found, without my people that I found, I may have given up too, uh, because it's very hard to go at it alone. Like it's it's basically impossible because you can't if you're going at it alone, you're relying on on your your only your own conviction. You 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 can't talk to anyone about it. You're kind of like just sitting there being you know your, your lone ranger. And uh, I think that's uh, that was very important. I think without that community. A lot of us probably would have um, would have given up too, because it would have been very hard for us to hold that conviction. But for those who did, obviously, been rewarded, um, you know, in, in more ways than one. But I don't think people who weren't around back then understand just how hard it was to to you know have that conviction, and it required. It basically required some some kind of like blind belief as well that everything would go well, because as I said, like. Proof of stake was supposed to be delivered at the end of 2017. That was what the, the, the that's what the developers were saying. That was the hype around it, and then it didn't come. And then it did, it still hasn't that's what, hasn't happened. Yeah, Vitalik told me that in the middle of 2017. He he said I think it's going to be here at the end of the year. I yes, exactly. Him at DevCon down in uh, Cancun. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I want to get to that mm-hmm. in a bit. Um, but so. When did the idea for the Daily Way come, and, and how did how did that like? Where were you in the, in this whole cycle that we're talking about, and, and when when did that really kind of materialize? Yeah, so I guess like I mean, just before Daily Way, there was there was EthHub, which I launched with Eric Connor in late 2018, which is similar to what the Daily Way is. It's an educational kind of like um, a resource, but. Uh, and that, you know, as I said, that launched, uh, I mean, that launched kind of like technically early 2019, but we started doing the podcast late 2018. Um, but with, with the Daily Gway, I think, I think I wanted to go back to my kind of like Lone Ranger roots where I wanted to do something that was just me. Um, not to say that Eric is, is bad to work with anything. He's awesome to work with. And I love doing what I do. I, we still do it together to this day. But for me, it was kind of like, I need to do more. I wanted to do more for the ecosystem. And I wanted to be able to move at a pace where uh, I, I could set the pace. And given that Eric lives in uh, where you where you are, basically the time zone that you're in, it was hard for us to schedule things. Um, and kind of like he he's at a different part of his life than I am. He has a, he's a kid now and everything like that as well. So uh, I was kind of like, well, I want to do a daily thing, but I think I don't think I can do that with Ethub. Um, and I want to do it kind of like on my own. I just do my own kind of like Lone Ranger thing. So I started the Daily Way in mid-2020 uh, and it started off as a, as a newsletter, so a daily newsletter. And then by late 2020, I was like, okay, I need to do even more than this. And I started doing a daily YouTube show, just all about Ethereum, recapping Ethereum and things like that. And during this time, I was still working as um, a full-time as a, as a product marketing manager at SET, which is one of the DeFi protocols. Uh, but then I left that in kind of like early 2021 because uh, the Daily Way and Ethub and all the other stuff that I was doing just started eating into a lot of my time. And I was like, okay, well, I want to do this. And as, as I said before, like I have... Uh, uh, like when I want to do my own thing, like I have to do it. Like I can't just, uh, you know, stick by something I don't want to do. And not to say that set wasn't uh, awesome to work with. They were great guys and I'm still an advisor to that team. But um, I think what ended up happening was that I just wanted to do the Daily Way stuff more. And uh, and I gravitated towards that. So that's kind of like where that that kind of came from. And I'm obviously still doing it to this day. Um, I haven't, I don't think I've ever really missed a day. And if I have, I've I've, I've made up for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um so do you, do you know, um, obviously Gwei is one of the, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it is a, um, uh, a unit, I guess, right? Of Ether. It's the most commonly about, used like, unit. There, there's some, there, some of these are named or, or sort of associated with different people in, in computer science history. Do you know about that at all? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't remember exactly who, but uh, I think it's from Way because there's Gway, G-Way, um, which is like Gigaway, and then there's Way, which I think is reference to someone in computer science. Yeah, well, 
apparently I was looking this up today just because I was curious. It's it's Shannon is a guy, Claude Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a mathematician and cryptographer, and some some people call him the father of information theory. Um, two cool things that I learned about him today. He invented a flamethrowing trumpet. <laughs> so just yeah, think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. And then he, he's also one of the, he's, apparently he, um, he co-invented the first wearable computer. Um, and, and the purpose of it was to help um, with the odds in playing roulette. So mm-hmm. there you go. That's a little bit of That's a gway, gway history for you. Um, but one thing you've, you've spoken about in the past that caught my ear was that the end state maybe for Ethereum um, or, or the, the final hurdle, I guess, maybe you could call it is sort of like the nation state and, and either having them accept it or, or having to um, deal with reactions of nation states to a network like Ethereum. And, and I wondered if, if we could just talk about that a little bit because um, it, you know, that's, it, I'm struggling here, but it, it's for a lot of people still in this world, this is still a very efe- like ephemeral topic. It's still very kind of in the ether, so to speak. But here we're talking about like nation states um, rise, you know, like marshalling their resources to either control or um, try to stop something like Ethereum. And is that a reality to you? Do you feel in the in the coming future, or how do you how do you see that playing out as a threat? I guess to this idea of decentralized networks. Mm-hmm. So I have a pretty strongly held opinion that um, you know some people will disagree with, but I believe that you shouldn't have a blockchain unless your goal is to resist the nation state or to resist you know the powerful kind of entities that want to take it down because. A blockchain to me is supposed to be decentralized. I don't really believe in these kind of like blockchains who say, oh, you know, it's a spectrum. We're just not as decentralized as Ethereum. So, but it's okay because we're like faster and we can do more, you know, we're more scalable, all that sorts of stuff. I don't actually believe in that at all. Um, I have, as I said, a very, very strong opinion that a blockchain needs to be built to resist the most powerful nation state on the planet, right? That right now that is the U S or China, depending on who you speak to. And if they want to take down one of these networks, we need to be able to resist it uh, in such a way where they actually can't do it. Right. And that's, this comes from Bitcoin land as well. Then this is, this is what Bitcoin is believe as well. And this is actually one of the only beliefs that Bitcoiners and Ethereum share. uh, And even though they won't admit it, they, they definitely share this belief that need to resist the kind of like nation state here. But it's not so much resist them because we think they're necessarily evil or we think that they're necessarily bad all the time, but it's more so that we're trying to build this infrastructure that we want to last for a very long time. We want to be resilient. We want to be fair to everyone. We want to be um, uh, uh, kind of like we, we want the rules to be uh, in place so that no one can manipulate them and that everyone has the same kind of like fair playing field. And I think it's a very um, ambitious goal to create a platform where it can exist uh, without being kind of like taken down by any nation state or taken down by any kind of like um, actor that that um, wants to do it harm and still service the world. Because as we've seen, there's a trade-off here. If you want to be resilient to attack, you need to limit your scalability. And that 
in, in turn increases the fees and, and prices people out of using it. So you, you kind of like get to this point where how do you reconcile, okay, you're building this awesome infrastructure that anyone can kind of like use and is resistant to nation states. But then what ends up happening is that the fees go up and no, no longer people can use it. It just becomes like a, a thing for whales and a, and a play thing for, 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 for kind of like people with, with, with money. So I think from, from that perspective, it's kind of like been hard for people to reconcile that. And that's why we see some of the rhetoric where people are like, you know, decentralization doesn't actually matter. What matters is like speed and scale. People just want to like do their things on this chain and, and, and make money. But I think that misses the overall point. And that's, as I said, that this is what I have a strong opinion on is that like a, a blockchain because it allows you to do anything you want, it needs to be able to resist people that want, don't want you to do anything you want. And to do that, you need to build it in such a way that uh, uh, it uh, kind of like has um, distribution around the world, has a lot of people running full nodes and things like that. I'm getting into the technical weeds now. But for, for me, th that's, that's why I say that if you have a blockchain, it should be able to resist nation states because without that, I just don't see the point. You should, like if, if you can't resist... Uh, nation states, then you may as well just have a database where uh, like a centralized database, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, I don't know if this is feasible, but I mean, if someone wanted, if the nation state wanted to hurt Ethereum badly, they would take down Amazon web services right now mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I think it's close to 60% of, of the nodes and the, the services, you know, that, that make up the Ethereum network are hosted by Amazon. And I, I, um, and this is a tricky one, but I, I'm I'm very much in favor of of everyone trying to um, decentralize that aspect of it as much as possible because I think it, anyone who knows about blockchain knows that um, one of its core you know uh, strengths is that there's no single point of failure, and yet here with that sort of hosting infrastructure, there there is we are still in a sort of a, a not a single point but a very you know damaging single like point of failure where Amazon has kind of taken over um, a, a big chunk of, of the hosting services. Yeah, I, I think the way I look at it is that if if the nation state was to attack or if um, say for some, for some reason Amazon was to shut down all of those kind of like uh, nodes, could Ethereum recover from that? And yes, it could, because it's easy for anyone to run a full node. Um, there's still 40% that would be online, right? And and the network would still be running. Um, that's that's how I kind of like view that. So that's why I don't think it's existential. It is not ideal. And there are various um, initiatives being worked on right now to make it easier for people to, to run their own nodes. There's actually... Um, uh, a light a initiative called um, a light light clients, which allow anyone using a, a, even a smartphone to verify the correctness of the chain without having to download like a full node, for example. So that's a kind of like a light client node where you still get the same guarantees as a full node in terms of being able to verify the chain, but it's much less um, intensive to do so. And you can do it from your phone. So, so there are people working on this and it's definitely an issue, but um, th yeah, the way I always view it is like, as long as there is a bunch of honest actors that have the history of the chain and they can kind of like um, come to agreement on it, the more the better, obviously, because you don't want, if there's only 10 um, copies of the blockchain, then those 10 copies of the blockchain can be modified in the same way to, to do something malicious. So, you know, for example, if the network went offline and then we're, we're, we become reliant on those 10 
um, copies to bootstrap the network again. Well, those 10 people could have been like, well, let's all collude and change the, the rules of the system so that we get all the money. And then when the system comes back up, uh, you know, the, the, the ETH comes to us. Um, that's why it's always very important to have as many nodes as possible throughout the world, uh, just in case something like this happens. But yeah, I mean, th there are various issues around this and decentralization is hard. It's very, very hard because People are lazy. People don't want to run their, 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 you know, their nodes on their own infrastructure. They'd rather just outsource it to Amazon. And people uh, are lazy in that um, centralization is very, very easy. Like we can actually fix every single issue we have within Ethereum with centralization. But that's the, the whole point is to yeah. do it in the decentralized way, right? But yeah. you know, everything else, like all, you know, there is a bit, major reason why proof of stake took so long is because there were so many um, moving parts to it that needed to be figured out in a decentralized way. But if we just did it in a centralized way. We do it in two seconds. It would have been delivered in 2017. It would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great segue into what I wanted to ask you next was um, I, I was listening to the Daily Guay and you were talking about how there, there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, this is taking so long, uh, ETH 2.0 and, and, and the move to proof of stake, um, like that's a bad thing. And, and and your point was that it's actually happening and it's it's pretty much on schedule uh, for, for now. It has been delayed a little bit, but it, it reminded me of, you know, reporting from my book and, you know, the, the Ethereum co-founders originally thought that they would have a crowd sale for Ether like a couple of days after the Bitcoin Miami conference in 2013. Of course, that didn't happen. And they've always like, but if you know the history of Ethereum, you know that the, what the goal, the goals that they've put out have stayed the same. They've just taken longer. Um, but they, they've hit the goals uh, every every time, and they've they've delivered. Um, it's just that you know it, they're I don't know. It, it, like you said, it's a decentralized uh, way of doing things, and it's hard. But um, it, it's it's also like uh, as far as I know from talking to Vitalik earlier this year, it seems like everything's on track for the merge, and you know EIP fifteen fifty nine happened. As you said in the Daily Gway, you know, today I think they're already talking about new, um, you know, uh, upgrades after the merge. And it's like, it, it's just, it, it, it gets frustrating sometimes to try to have to um, over and over tell people like, you know, just, just because it's late doesn't mean that these guys aren't going to deliver because they have over and over again. And look at the community that they have and, and how, you know, Vitalik is less important than he's ever been to this ecosystem. And, and there's just an amazing group of people all over the world that are making it a reality. Mm -hmm, exactly. And, you know, I think uh, most of the delays, if not all of them, have always stemmed from the fact that they wanted to do it better. They wanted to do it the right way. They didn't want to do, you know, the, the, and by they, I mean the developers and researchers, they didn't want to rush something to mainnet that would result in uh, you know, a bug or result in someone losing money or the network going offline because Ethereum is not a small network anymore, right? It's a $350 billion network hosting trillions of dollars of um, economic value or, or processing that every year. So when you take that context into account, the delays are done uh, in a very kind of, I mean, the delays happen because of the fact that we find a bug or we find a new way of doing things. We find a better way of doing things because once you actually push something to the network, it's very hard to change that because uh, the Ethereum core protocol lifecycle is is long. There may only be, I mean, I believe there was only one upgrade in 2020, I, I believe, um, or one network upgrade in 2020 uh, it, it, because of the fact that it's such a big community now, big network, um, the developers are much more risk averse than they were in the early days. 
it just takes long to do anything. So you'd rather get it right the first time than say, oh, we'll just ship this as it is and then we'll update it later. I mean, you could do that in normal software development. That's fine. You can just ship an early version and be like, oh, we'll, we'll fix it. Like there's uh, in video game development, this is actually quite common where you're just like, okay, let's just ship this now and then we'll do a day one patch where we fix all the issues on, on day one. You can't do that with Ethereum. You can't ship something and be like, oh yeah, we'll just fix it later. You, because later could, could be two years. You could have the DAO in a day if that was the case, right? Like obviously, it, it, yeah. or, or any of the parody hacks or- or a lot of other of other things yeah exactly exactly so it, it just changes that and then i think that's and and because everything's done out in the open is a major reason why people criticize ethereum because you see these things happening in real time could you imagine i use this example a lot could you imagine if apple's development process for their new products was completely open and transparent to people uh you know imagine the, the um the first iphone i'm pretty sure the, the uh, steve jobs came up with uh the idea to do it in the early 2000s maybe 2002 or something like that if i remember correctly you may know that the dates better than i do but um and then it didn't come out till 2007 um or it wasn't announced till then could you imagine the amount of iterations and and features that were added and removed during that time? I, and would, have, I would have paid to see that in real time. That would have been exactly, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. And that, but that's exactly what we see with Ethereum development. We see it all in real time, all in public. Everything that ever happens is transparent. And that's a blessing and a curse. Blessing because it's an amazing thing to follow along with, and and a lot of people get to to, to be involved with it from all, all around the world. But a curse because the the fud is relentless. The the fud around everything is like, oh, this changed again, or this changed again. Well, would you have rather it not changed, and then it actually resulted in a worse outcome? Like I, I think um, the the proof of stake developers had to come to a. Um, a very big fork in the road where they actually scrapped the original roadmap completely. They reset the original roadmap in, I think, 2018, uh, mid-2018, and they started again. That was an absolutely huge thing. They, they, they took some research from, from yeah, the earlier years. Vlad and, and, and um, uh, Vlad Zamfir and, and Vitalik were working on sort of like sort of parallel ideas, but they realized they had to get rid of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Exactly. And they they yeah. they set they they kept some of the core core ideas like um Casper FFG and things like that. But uh, pretty much all the roadmap and the uh, the roadmap changed and it's it's been changing since. I mean, uh, the thing is is that like originally it was we would upgrade the existing network to proof of stake. Um, you know that's how a proof of stake would come to be. But then it ended up being well, let's launch it as a separate network because it's safer to do that, right? And, and it's safer to test it as a separate network than upgrade this network that's hosting all these apps and is billions of dollars at economic activity. Uh, and now we're getting to the point where we're like, okay, let's merge these networks, right? So, I mean, the roadmap has changed a lot over time, but I think that isn't, as I said, a natural consequence of finding ways to do to do it better and finding ways to do it safer rather than um, running into walls and being like, oh, okay, it turns out this was not possible to begin with. I mean, there are some things like that, like sh the sharding roadmap has changed quite considerably, but as I said, it's done for the right reason. It's not done for the for the wrong reasons, I believe. So you're obviously um, incredibly bullish on Ethereum, but what worry, what worries you about it? What are you, um, what, you know, are there, is there something, some, some scenario where you like would be very concerned about Ethereum as a going concern or, or what, what do you think um, the main uh, downside could be here? So I think, I was much more worried maybe a year or two ago about things and about how long things were taking. 
I think these days I don't really worry too much. I, I feel like Ethereum is inevitable. I even, even with all of its kind of like current issues, I feel like the, um, most of them, if not all of them are going to get solved. I'm very, very confident in that. But also um, there are a couple of other things that maybe, uh, you know, they're not unique to Ethereum, but they're kind of like um, uh, existential maybe to all kind of decentralized chains. And I think the big one is that people just won't care about decentralization. That's something that people bring up all the time in that, People will come to this ecosystem, you know, most people are only in it for the money. So why would they care about decentralization? They, uh, they'll just kind of like use whatever makes them the most money, which is a fair argument to make. But I actually think that people who say people don't care about decentralization are talking from a privileged view where they may not care about it. They may not need it. They may, um, they may think that it's just all about the money. But I think there's a lot of people who actually do care about it. I think whenever I think about decentralization, I think about security. That's how I reframe it. Like if you ask someone, do you care about being secure in your home? Do you care about your assets being secure? They're going to say, yes, of course. Like you don't want your assets being uh, uh, being unsecure and being able to be stolen from you. So then, okay, well, security stems from decentralization in this space. If your blockchain is not decentralized, well, then your security is very, very low. It means that there's a centralized actor that can actually steal your funds or can do something you know, um, egregious with your funds. So that's how I, I kind of reframe the conversation there. But if I had to come up with one thing, it would be that in terms of like the centralized platforms just reach critical mass, they get so much adoption uh, that they kind of like dwarf the decentralized ones. But I honestly don't think that's going to happen. I, I, I don't, I, I, even with kind of like some of these other platforms that have gained prominence lately that are, you know, are very obviously centralized, uh, Ethereum is still growing. Ethereum is still growing at an epic pace. The L2 layer two ecosystem is, is taking off, which is, which is how Ethereum is scaling. So I don't, and in terms of like other, other things that could kind of like stop this train, I don't really think there's anything at this point. I, I, I honestly truly believe Ethereum has reached the point where, even if uh, you know all the core developers and all the core researchers were maybe kind of like uh, hit by a bus or kind of like all went away all of a sudden, which obviously is like a pretty much zero percent chance for all of them to to, to end up like that, uh, I still think Ethereum would 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 continue quite nicely. But obviously, it would take a hit. But um, yeah, there's not many reasons to be bearish on Ethereum. That's 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 why I, I kind of like I always ask people like, give me a bear case for Ethereum, like an actual bear case for 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 Ethereum as a platform. And people struggle. They come up with some. All, all kinds of esoteric things that just a very, very low chance of it happening. I'm like, okay, well, thanks for confirming my biases, guys. Like there really isn't a major reason to be bearish on Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, all right, so, so to end on a lighter note, um, I, I told my kids, because they love the Australia doesn't exist meme. So I, to <laughs> I told them, I'm talking to somebody from Australia and I, and I said, if you guys like they're like fascinated and they're like oh like i'm like all right so give me a couple questions for somebody in australia so um th this is from my nine-year-old um how much wildlife lives near your house and how many want um to kill you <laughs> <laughs> all right so i, I can come i can um, answer this from from two places because as i said i just moved into my new place for the last couple months at my old place, you would see kangaroos quite regularly because I lived right next to a, a gorge um, and the kangaroos lived there. They would come out onto the road and hop around. Uh, there was actually pretty big packs of them because they, they, they live obviously with their families. 
I once saw like a pack of 10 just at night. It was actually quite scary. <laughs> there was like a vacant, there's a vacant block near where I am or used to be uh, where, where I used to be. Um, and they were just standing there and I had, I was driving and my headlights uh, sh- uh, uh, got went into their kind of like eyes and the, the reflection of their eyes. And oh. all I saw was this, just these bunch of eyes staring back at me. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell is that? And then as I got close, I was like, oh, it's the kangaroos. But the thing is about kangaroos is that they have extremely strong legs. So if they if they hop on a car, for example, they'll actually crush the car. So you don't actually want the kangaroo. And they're not they're not aggressive unless you're kind of like aggressive towards them. They won't actually attack you unprovoked or anything like that. But they can be quite scary, especially when they're hopping around because you don't know what direction they're going to go in and they're hopping around everywhere. Um, so so that was um that was quite scary. But yeah, that that those there were there were them that lived near me in in my old place. But um. In, in my in my new place, uh, I haven't seen any kangaroos, but there's a lot of wildlife. Yeah, I live in a, a newer area where there's a lot of wildlife. Um, there's like you know possums and things like that, uh, but none of them want to kill me. That's for sure. Uh, I, I you know there's a lot of spiders everywhere. Like not not a lot, but like you you find them in your house like every couple of days, but. The, the actual poisonous big spiders, um, you have to actually go looking for them. They're not just going to, like, most of the time, they're not just going to randomly pop up in your house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless you're living out in, like, the 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 country, right, the the bush, as, as we call it, you you encounter a lot more of it out there. But in, like, kind of, like, modern, you know, in a, not inner city, but, like, metro society, uh, unless you're actually looking for it, you won't encounter that, that the wildlife that's actually like dangerous. Like I snakes are, are around, but, um, a lot of them aren't the, the, the snakes that'll kill you. Like if they bite you, it'll, it'll sting or something. You might may need medical attention, but it's, it's mainly out in the bush where there's uh, like a lot of bugs and stuff that'll like bite you and there's snakes. But again, you have to actually go into the bush for that. Like if you're on the road or in kind of like the hotel and things, it's, it's not really, not really there. Yeah. That's funny. Um, I lived in Brooklyn for New York City for 13 years and in an apartment and obviously in in an an enormous city and um, kind of, you know, just lost touch with nature. And then I moved back to Los Angeles, my hometown, and I I basically live up in the mountains and and I'm, you know, surrounded by like coyotes are going through my yard and there's spiders (laughs) and snakes. And for a good six or eight months, I was really squeamish because I was coming from New York. You know, I was kind of just Mm -hmm. like. I, I was just a little uh, just off put by it, but now, you know, three years later, I'm just like, I'm screw it. I I'm, I'm in it. You know, I, nothing scares me anymore. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll stick my hand in that log and do whatever I need to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, Hopefully down there in Melbourne, uh, uh, Anthony, if you get accosted by some, uh, you know, kangaroos, you'll whip out your, your uh, lightsaber as the Obi-Wan Kenobi of, <laughs> yeah. of Ethereum and uh even though you're not that old but uh i want to thank you man this has been a really fascinating conversation i really appreciate you um letting us into your life and and your passion and um thanks for doing what you do i think you're an amazing resource everyone who's listening to this should definitely subscribe to the the daily Gway and just check it out um there's so much to learn and and anthony will point you in all sorts of interesting directions um as this uh you know ecosystem of all so thanks thanks anthony i really appreciate it yeah yeah thanks thanks Matt, for having me this has been a great conversation and, and thanks for all the all the kind words and good questions yeah man have a great night and i'll talk to you soon talk to you soon mate bye okay. that's it for this episode of decent people thanks so much for listening 
Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter, at Decential. Have a great day.